0: That does tell you what spirit means. It means breath, right? So we're on page 20. We are talking about the fundamental activity of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament believer. Uh, So we're going to begin with the beginning of your salvation and then work our way through to its end. And so we're going to work our way through this list, uh, A through H, and one of them two of them we're not going to do very much on Uh, we're not going to deal with the gifts at this point we're going to make that a separate study Uh, the baptism by the Holy Spirit and dwelling and anointing we're going to talk about as well letter C uh, a little bit later on and uh, we're going to try to finish this page off we're going to spend several weeks because we have a lot of difficult topics to address you'll see the next page is spirit baptism The next page after that is healing that you don't have yet. I will give that to you next week. And so that will be like three weeks from now. We'll be dealing with healing. We're going to be talking about spiritual gifts as a separate one and specifically about the charismatic gifts. We're going to address those as well. So we've got several studies coming up that just need to be clarified, not because God's word is unclear, it is clear, but because men have confused, muddied the waters. And so we got to clear out what they have introduced and how they're interpreting passages, particularly with the charismatic movement in the last 100, 100, 100 years or so, 120 years, particularly. But also some historical things that we have malapplied. And I'm not going to say misapplied because I think it was, some of it was intentional. So that makes it malicious. It was malapplied, badly applied. And not just misapplied, but other things were misapplied. So we're going to talk about some of that. So we're not going to go through every one of these, but we're going to go through this page and we'll reference two or three of these. And then obviously they're going to take more time than tonight. So I'm not going to bog down into those individuals in this order. I'm going to deal with them alternately and try to develop them. And hopefully that will make sense to you as we go through. that. This is kind of the overview of all of his work from where we got saved to where we are glorified. And then specifically what we are supposed to do in response and relationship to them. So let's begin with where the Holy Spirit begins with us. And that is in convicting us. And of course John 16, 7, and 8 is the main passage there that we look to where Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin, which is their sin, of righteousness, which is God's righteousness, and the judgment that is to come. And that that is the primary initial work of the Holy Spirit with regard to men. I have it somewhere there in Romans 8. I'll have to look at that again. But we have this relationship between the Spirit. I'm just reading through Romans 8 as fast as I can to see where it is. Oh, let's look at verse 3. It says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, that their minds are the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnal mind is death, but to spiritual mind is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity of God, for there is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be so, then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is not his. And so, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us that is there. We're going to talk about him, but primarily, as you're an unbeliever, we know his first approach to you is to convict you, and that involves him opening up your mind not only to your sin but to righteousness. That means that we have to present people with this distinction. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. So while the Holy Spirit convicts them in that, we are to give them the, the word of God in those areas. So I give them the word of God about what sin is. For the ways of sin is death. Uh, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. I can go through the description of sin. The best description of sin, of course, is breaking of the law, and now we get to introduce the law. Well, the law is good, uh, because it shows us what righteousness should look like, but then it also reveals that we aren't righteous. And so the law is there, as our, as our schoolmaster says, and that's probably the Romans passage I'm looking for, and it's probably not in Romans 8 there. But this, we have that conviction, so he's going to convict us of, Sin, yes, we often think of conviction of being only convicted of sin, uh, but that's only part of it. That's one third of the convicting of the Holy Spirit, right? He convicts us of sin to turn us to Christ. Uh, and I'm going to keep stating here whether these things are repeating acts or non-repeating acts. and this is a repeating act of the Holy Spirit. He'll convict you of sin of righteousness and of judgment. So do men have to be convicted of their sin? Yes, absolutely. And we pray for that. But we also need to pray that they be convicted of righteousness. Because right now, what is the definition of what is right? Whoever yells loudest, Whoever yells loudest okay? Whoever the majority is. Whoever All right? Who, we, we have this concept of rightness that is divorced from truth. It is right in my own eyes. And this is the description of the world right before the flood it was a description of Israel right before God sent them into captivity and destroyed them, is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this is not a new concept. So in the world you're encountering, we're not just praying for them to be convicted of their sin, of them doing wrong, but being convicted of what is right. Because they have no concept of rightness, and this engages the conscience. And that lawlessness now is applauded. And it's like, no, we shouldn't applaud lawlessness. We should be applauding righteousness. And we sh- and, but, the, but we aren't. Uh, our media doesn't do that. And I'm not just talking about the news media. I'm talking about media in general. I'm talking about video games. I'm talking about TV shows. We don't applaud righteousness. We don't want to invite people into good morals. In fact, uh, most of our uh, TV shows nowadays, and I, I can't speak very well to this because I don't know them. Uh, I've been I've been out of watching TV shows for many many years when the government took away our TVs, uh, free TV. And so <laughs> you're trying to figure out when the government took those away. Uh, talk to me later. I'll tell you when. So, but what are they? Who are the who are the good guys? Well, they're not really good anymore. They're just less evil, or maybe even more evil. But and so we look at this, and we have uh, a need to be convicted of righteousness, too. It's the righteousness of God. And the law enables us to do that. And so we point them and say, well, here's righteousness. It's not what's right in your own eyes. It's what's right in God's Word. And so while we can share with them that truth, um, that doesn't mean it's going to penetrate them. We, we, as we share them the truth, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and convict them of that. And that's not by powerful emotional preaching. We think, well, I'm just going to keep playing into them until they break down. Well, you are not the Holy Spirit. I am not the Holy Spirit. It is his job to convict them. It is my job to confront them. I can confront them with the truth. Here is sin, here is righteousness, and here is the judgment to come. But I can't make them sense the depth of their sin and the... Great distance, they have fallen short of his glory. Nor can I convict them of the judgment to come, but I can tell them about it. I can tell them you're going to have to answer to God, and he's the righteous judge. And you know, in your heart of hearts, you know that. Well, I'm not in their heart of hearts. I can point to it, but the Holy Spirit can work there and convict them. Now, can the conviction of the Holy Spirit be resisted? Yes, because. Obviously, it, it must be resisted, right? It says he'll convict the world in John 16. Is the world saved? No. So therefore, it is obvious that you can resist the working of the Holy Spirit in this area of convicting. He can convict you. You can have a sense of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. You can have it affect you and realize the consequences, understand your, your need, and then walk away and not receive Christ your Savior. You can drown it out with other the, the work, the truth you've heard, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you can resist. Doesn't mean you, you never can be confronted again. Uh, the Holy Spirit will do that and we will repeat that uh, to a point. So this is repeatable, but it does eventually stop. How do we know that? It is. Romans chapter 1. It says that at some point God will give them over. That means he just surrenders them to their sin. He just just turns them over to their sin and he'll stop convicting them. And that is a frightening condition to be in, to be given over to it. He'll give them over to their sin and and let them be abased. And at that point, uh, without the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, you cannot have a... A redemption, because you will not come to Him uh, by your own understanding, because your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah seventeen nine. Any questions on the Holy Spirit's work of convicting? When you're praying for people's salvation, you are essentially praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. That's your part, and you're praying for this conviction of the Holy Spirit. God's part. All right, and I hear people. Use phrases in their praying that aren't very biblical. When we're praying for people's salvation, oh Lord, please save them. Well, what does that mean to you? You're sounding like a Calvinist that God has to come and regenerate them, but that prayer is meaningless because he didn't elect them first, he won't regenerate them either, no matter how hard you pray, correct? So, our prayer, if it were going to be really specific when we pray for Salvation of loved ones, friends, enemies, coworkers, neighbors—is Lord, uh, open up doors of opportunity for them to hear the gospel, whether from me or from someone else, and and convict them of their sin, of your righteousness, and the judgment to come, and that they might be saved. Okay, and that should be our prayer. It should be that specific, uh, and then when He gives you an opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, you should have the courage and boldness to recognize it and to speak God's word, or their blood will be on your hands if you cower away from that opportunity. Please lay hold of those opportunities. You prayed for it. God answered your prayer. You have a chance to talk to them. Lay hold of that. Share the gospel with them. They might hate you for it because they want to reject it, because they can resist it, but they're not ultimately rejecting you. They're rejecting God and the Spirit's work. All right? But the promise of God is that the Holy Spirit will convict them. Go on to number two, letter B, I should say. Letter B, regeneration. And again, we have to talk a little bit about this uh, because of the Calvinist model of this. So John chapter one, verse 12 is our first text there. And we can go into John chapter 3 as well uh, being born again. We can go to first Peter one and our morning message. Uh, Let's read Job chapter 1 verse 12 it says "But as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name who are born not of blood nor the will of flesh nor the will of man but of God And, and so there's that regeneration to be born of God how do we relate that to the Holy Spirit if we go to John chapter 3 we see how John develops this how are we born again. Uh, we are born not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. And Jesus tells uh, Nicodemus this in verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Uh, and do not marvel, I said that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. but cannot tell where it comes and where from and where it goes so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so this Spirit birth, and the regeneration is listed in Titus 3.5. That's the passage that specifically says the regeneration of the Spirit. But this spirit birthing is the is the op, you've all been born of water. Okay? And we're not talking about baptism there. Uh and yes. Others have said being born of water, being baptized, being born of the Spirit. No. Uh, Being born of the water is your fleshly birth. The relationship born in the water is with the born of the flesh. That's the comparison there. And so even now when a woman gets ready to give birth, what do we say? What's the first? She broke her water. Her water broke. You're born of the water. It's your physical birth. You have to be born of the flesh uh, by the will of men. Uh, interesting use of the will of men instead of the will of God uh, that we have a part in this uh, process because we were given a command of God to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Okay, And so when men choose not to do that, they are exercising their will against the will of God. God has declared his will that we be fruitful multiply. When we refuse to do that, we are doing the will of our flesh uh, by our will. We'll decide when and if we'll have children. Uh, but when we surrender our will to God, so should this. We should surrender to that command which was given before there were sins. So that was a command that is still standing. So, the fleshly birth is the water, born of the water. Then you also must be born of the spirit and the spirit regeneration. And now you, I say, well, what's the problem? You said it's uh, the new birth. Well, the question <laughs> is when does it happen, not does it happen to the Christian. And this is the discussion that we'll have that will be in contradiction with a Calvinist over. A Calvinist believes that the Holy Spirit regenerates you before you respond to the gospel in order that you can respond to the gospel. So the Holy Spirit has to make you alive so that you can accept Jesus as your Savior. Uh, but you notice that this is just the working of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about Jesus Christ and, and those doctrines here. So in a, between A and B, my contention is that you have trusted in Jesus Christ. You have responded to the conviction. And in response to that acceptance of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit we receive new birth, regeneration. A Calvinist believes that you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit first, Not based on any decision of yours God has elected you in eternity past now you have been reborn now you have the capacity the ability to accept him as Savior and so you have to be born and then believe and this is their model that they have to go by and so therefore the work of the Holy Spirit has to be irresistible because you are dead, and trespass says a dead man can't do anything, which is not true. Uh, and so we find that uh, we have um, their requirement of an irresistible Holy Spirit, which we know it can be resisted, and we have uh, the Spirit saving you so that you can get saved, essentially. And they can beat around the bush on that and do their semantic gymnastics, but it boils down to you have to be saved before you can get saved. And really, even before you can get saved to get saved, you have to be chosen and saved in eternity past in the mind of God. So you have to be saved in the mind of God, then saved by the Holy Spirit so you can get saved. Otherwise, you can't. And not you won't, you can't get saved. That is very different than the Bible's concept of regeneration and so it's a non-repeating act of God in the believer at conversion by which we receive a new nature a new righteous standing and the possibility for a new practice and that should be 2 Corinthians 517 that is that concept of all things have become new all things have passed away how does that happen because of the rebirth and again we can put 1st Peter 1 there that we are are uh, begotten again and that begotten again is, is again, God's answer to a repentant heart, trusting in Christ Jesus. So we have the, conv- God initiates it through convicting. We respond to that convicting by accepting Christ as our Savior. And God's initial first activity is to regenerate you, make you new. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. You're born again. You are begotten again by the power of the Holy Spirit through the, or by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any question on regeneration? I must be a phenomenal teacher. Because there's no questions. All right, move on. Or are you just an incredibly well-informed group that don't really need this at all, just being reminded of stuff you already knew? Letter C, baptism by the Spirit and indwelling and anointing. Now you have a whole bunch of verses here And you can see that we're going to talk about spirit baptism uh, coming up. And so I'm just going to talk about what it's for, whether it happens again. And we'll look at a couple of these passages uh, with regard to the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and theointing of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean by this? What we mean by this is to simply have Christ in our hearts. To to be baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, is is associated with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It is at conversion, like regeneration, only instead of talking about what happens to us, regeneration is what the Holy Spirit does to us. The anointing and the, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is what the Holy Spirit does with us. So he makes us new, and then he dwells with us. right. you see the difference between these? One is an action he does in response to our obedience to the gospel. By faith we trust in Christ. He makes us new. Then he resides with us. And that order is very deliberate. Why is that order so important? He is holy, holy, holy God. Correct. He's not going to reside in an unregenerate person. So he's going to make us new, a new creation in Christ Jesus, then take up residence in us. So it's a very deliberate order. It doesn't, it's not, It's not. there's not a big gap between those. I don't know, I don't know exactly how long it takes for the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. Jesus, uh, in creation, he just spoke the word and we came into existence, took a little bit more in creating man. So whatever the time gap is between that, whether it's nanoseconds or a few minutes or uh, a few hours, I don't know, uh, but whatever that, that deliberate order is necessary. He makes us a new creation, then he takes up residence in us. And we use these terms to refer to that, and where he takes up that residence in us. Now, before we do that, we got to talk about a couple of these verses. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Verse 5, it says, For John truly baptized with water, this is Jesus speaking, after the resurrection, before his ascension, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And, of course, we can contrast that with, um, with the statement of Jesus Christ saying, receive the Holy Spirit in John chapter 21 at the shore. And we can recognize that there was, this is a transition period. Where we are going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so we're going from the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit wasn't a permanent indwelling. Hence, not the use of baptism. It is the use of filledness. Receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to breathe on you the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. And so the Holy Spirit we see is present in the Old Testament. We talked about that last week. Now we're coming into something unique. And the unique work of the Holy Spirit in the churches is described by Jesus here as you'll be baptized by the Spirit. What does that mean? The word baptism means to be immersed. You'll be immersed in the Holy Spirit. So it's not a a temporary filling. It is not uh, occasional. It is this complete uh, union with the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to happen to them that hadn't happened Why not? Because Jesus Christ is still on the earth. He says, I go to my Father, and it's better for you that I go away, so I can send the Holy Spirit for his permanent filling or indwelling of you. And so, yes, the term here is used, but it's obvious that the disciples had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit yet at this point. And the other passages we have listed here are correlated with what that entails uh, that we are no longer our own, we are bought the price, we glorify God, and our bodies, which are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So those kinds of terms are all in there, that now you are this, this house, you are the temple of God. Your body is, your physical body is the place of the Spirit's presence. And thus we are taking the house of God with us wherever we go. This is not, this building is not the house of God. All right? This is kind of like a garage for a lot of houses of God. We're a condominium here. Okay? Think of this as apartment, you know, building. Because we have all these little temples. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you. You have of God. You are not your own. And so this isn't the house of God. This is the house of God. I just hit my body, and the people on podcast are wondering what happened. To, to his microphone, that's what it was. This physical body, which is an incredible thing. And so this is the baptism. It happens at conversion. It wasn't mean. And uh, Holy Spirit comes to live in you, setting you apart for service, holiness, immersing in the body of Christ. Is non-repeating. as a single act of God. Uh, at conversion. And we're going to study it a lot more, so I'm not going to even ask you for your questions because I know you have a lot. We're going to address that next week. The sealing of the Holy Spirit. We talked about last Sunday morning uh, the purpose to secure the believer as belonging to Christ, and we talked about this morning as well. At conversion, the Holy Spirit sets his stamp on the believer's life, giving him security in the promised inheritance. It is a non-repeating act, and that is deceptive because it is a continuing act. Okay, what's the difference between continuing and repeating? Alright, a continuing act is, has one beginning and just continues. Therefore, it can't be called repeating because it's not something you have to keep looking for. Lord, I want you to set your seal on me. Set your seal on me. Set your seal on me. You don't have to keep doing that. What you have to do is submit and surrender and have faith in the seal he set on you and continues to set. So, if it's a repeating activity, then we keep chasing it. We want to pursue it. Well, you don't have to pursue the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. It, it occurred on one occasion at your conversion, uh, genuine conversion. The genuineness of your faith is there. God knows it. You don't know it. I don't know it. But God knows whether it's genuine back then. We know it as we endure, as we are obedient, as we're walking in the Spirit. We have higher and higher confidence in that work. And we trust in the power of God, this morning's message. We are kept by his power uh, through faith. And so we find that this is the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And let's look at Ephesians. And again, we can look at any of these. I'm picking the Ephesians one because we have two of them here in the same book. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Notice the order there. You heard the word of truth, Then you trusted. The gospel of your salvation, whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. So what is the order? When did the sealing happen? Before or after you believed? After, having already believed, having believed, you were sealed. And so we believed and then we were sealed. And that's important. That is the guarantee of our inheritance. We talked about that last Sunday morning. And that is uh, to his glory. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 30. In Ephesians still. To see the application of that. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, you'll notice every time the word sealing is used, including in the concept of it in 1 Peter, it is for the end times. So you are sealed today for that day in the future. Now, there is one occasion where the Holy Spirit seals people and then doesn't indwell them. What is that one occasion? 144,000, remember? He has to come and put a special seal on their forehead Right before the rapture in, in Revelation chapter 7. And so we have the sixth seal opening up. We have all men see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So we know the rapture is happening because men see Jesus in the clouds. Pretty obvious. That's the same event as First Thessalonians uh, is describing. And then it says, Well, we before. It's completed, the 144,000 have to have a special seal put on them by the Holy Spirit. He is the sealer of salvation. And since he's leaving, because he, we are the indwelt ones, he's leaving with us, uh, they have to be sealed before he leaves. And the next thing you know, we, we're all arriving in heaven at the end of chapter 7. And so even there, for the seven years of wrath, for the 144,000, the Holy Spirit's work of sealing has to be done before he leaves the earth. And so this is a unique work for the church age and beyond. Any questions on the sealing of the Holy Spirit? Again, it's not repeatable because once it happens, it persists. It's a continuing activity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He will not fail in guaranteeing your qualification for for the inheritance that God has preserved. is there good uh, this is the big question and that's why i keep i keep referencing god knows what your faith is whether it's a genuine and enduring faith or whether it is a fleeting and false faith he knows that and so jesus an example that was in the gospel where jesus is, he didn't need anyone to tell him what was in the, what was in the heart of men because he knew men's hearts he knew who he could trust. He knew who he couldn't trust because he knew what was in their heart. So here are a bunch of people who says, we believe in Jesus, and by the end of the chapter they want to kill him. All right? So Jesus knew who was who. But the author didn't know who was who. The disciples didn't know who was who until the end of the conversation when it was very obvious, those people don't really trust in you. Uh, and so the sealing work of the Holy Spirit is for those with genuine faith that have received the seed of the gospel in good soil. Those that receive it in rocky soil are your concern. Are they sealed and then unsealed? Is the Holy Spirit there? Um, The Bible says that they have tasted of the heavenly gift, and that's in Hebrews. They have tasted of it and then rejected it. And so, I'm not going to say that the sealing happened, but they they have some, at some level, they have had some interaction with the Holy Spirit because they did receive his conviction and they did apparently respond to it with some kind of faith event in their life. They received the seed, but they had rocky, soiled hearts. And so when they were tested, they failed. And our conclusion is that God would know their heart, the genuineness of their faith, um, of whether they are sealed or not, and whether they are indwelt or not. But they have certainly tasted something of what a Christian has, but without a genuineness to it. And I can't go much farther beyond that, because to go that, beyond that would go beyond Scripture, really, to say um, that I know what that extent of what that interaction with the Holy Spirit was. Or is. Um, But certainly uh, for Peter, Paul, John, Jesus, James, their expectation is that once the Holy Spirit has taken up residence, he will seal your inheritance. With those that have a faith profession that doesn't stick, uh, we have to assume that God knew uh, that they believed superficially and did not take up full residence there. does not mean that they could not come to true faith. Um, In other words, part of my preaching is to recognize that many new Christians have superficial faith. Many, many, many of them. And our work in discipleship is to bring them to mature faith in the work of the writing of the scriptures to bring them to mature faith and to encourage them to endure testing, to endure and to stand fast in their faith, um, lest they fall away. And, and that is that tension that's just always there. And, uh, and we, we just need to have a confidence that God knows their heart and, uh, when there is a demonstration in their relationship with Holy Spirit that is uh, full of faith or uh, developing faith, that that's where that seal occurs. I say at, at, at your conversion experience, uh, but that may be a different time than you think it is. We think a conversion experience is when they heard the gospel, came forward to service, prayed a sinner's prayer, and got the little booklet and got baptized. Um, And that may not be a person's full conversion experience. Um, And and I use myself as an example. I've been baptized twice. And uh, both in Baptist churches, so it's not like I was in another denomination or anything. Uh, But I made a statement of a desire to be baptized as a five-year-old. I got baptized as a five-year-old. I was told that, oh, you made this profession of faith. It was not something real to me. It was not something I remembered. It was not something that I could bank on. Uh, My wife has a very different testimony. She certainly was very real to her at five years old. So don't think that every five-year-old is going to be in my condition. But as a very young man and to be baptized at a very young age, where it was uh, largely meaningless to me at the age of 12 at camp uh, is when I'd tell people that's my full conversion. <laughs> did, did something happen when I was five? I'm sure something happened there. I don't think I was manipulated by my parents or whoever to receive Christ. They were telling me the truth. I probably had some kind of response. Um, but it was at the age of 12 that i say this is where... Um, my conversion experience completed. And, uh, and I was baptized because I said, I, I, it, this is the meaningful conversion for me, and this is what I want to celebrate and communicate to people that I'm a new person, maybe back then, but for sure here. And, uh, and so I'm not opposed to people having that happen uh, in their life. And, and not just for children, even for adults. To say, well, I accepted Christ, and here's the testimony, right? I accepted Christ, and I went off into sin, and then I came back. And the question is, do you need to be saved again? Well, I don't know. Because I don't know what your first conversion experience meant. It could just be that you were a a wandering child of God, a prodigal son coming back, or whether this is the completion of your conversion experience. We think conversion experience happens in the short time. Sometimes it happens over a long period of time the full conversion uh, uh, transformation, the the full decision to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. In other communities, you'll hear it talked about like this. I accepted Jesus as my Savior here, and I accept him as my Lord over here. Okay? Now, I take issue with that theologically because it's impossible. What are they communicating to you, though? They accepted a free gift of God to get out of jail free card here. They make Jesus their king over here. Which one is their conversion experience? All of it. Right. So I'll say, well, let's put the stake in the ground, and I'm okay baptizing those people when they make Jesus their Lord. If they come to me and say that, well, Jesus was my Savior, but he wasn't my Lord. And I'm like, well. He's not the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> you probably weren't saved fully. Then, well, the, even if you got baptized, you know, there's a lot of churches that you pray the service prayer, wham, you get baptized in the evening service. You did that in the morning, get baptized in the evening, and you're on your way, guaranteed. Here's your stamp of approval, and we'll give you a little booklet, and you're on your way to heaven. First John, you know, they get the whole shmeal. And then later on, they say, well, now, now I've made Jesus my Lord. And they come to me, and I'm like, well, what do you think? Where do you have confidence well i have confidence in this decision much more than that decision my microphone just surrendered so i'll go to this one and so that's the sealing work all right any other questions good question yes yes the save them and dunk them churches and i'm not against doing baptism very quickly after salvation in fact in in acts chapter 2 they baptized that day Um, but i want you to realize that that wasn't the first time they ever heard about jesus right consider the audience who was the audience that day that got baptized the day of their conversion yeah these people that crucified jesus who had been hearing jesus preach who had been following jesus this is the big thing that happened in jerusalem they were all jews that knew the law and they were making and they understood baptism because that was a baptism was a jewish ritual they completely understood baptism they completely understood who jesus was this was a big deal and it was tested immediately wasn't it their faith was tested immediately because the religious leaders were going to be opposing them and so i have no problem baptizing in short order remember You know even the ethiopian eunuch well here's water what hinders me from being baptized well do you believe i believe all right let's get you in there and so i'm not against that i just want to recognize that there are superficial professions of faith not all of them are but enough of them are that it's okay to develop that and say well if you came to a more substantial profession of faith (laughs) Uh, and want to be rebaptized? i'm okay with that i'm okay with that um because you're declaring something that there's you're a new person and i gotta tell you when when you stop being king of you and jesus starts being king of you you're a new person that is what it means to be a new person is when jesus is king of you right okay gifts we're going to handle later the rest of them are repeatable And so we're going to talk about filling, guidance, and fruitfulness, and then how we make that happen. I guess I'm going to take another week, unless you want to stay around for another half hour. All right, so we really didn't get half as far as we should have gotten tonight. I don't know why, but I get kind of stirred up and get going. Any other comments or questions or what we have? Yes. All right. The question is about, is having a conscience the work of the Holy Spirit? And no, it's not. It is part of being in an image bearer of God. It is part of having something. And, and so there are certain things that are the universal grace of God. That is that he gives it to all men. And we are all carry that we inherited from our fathers, the carrying the image of God. It has been perversed by sin but we still have the image bearing quality part of that is that i believe god has granted men to the capacity to have faith all men have the capacity to have faith god made us that way he made all men all men have faith and so when we're praying for faith we're really praying for god to direct help us direct that faith in him, help us direct faith to Jesus Christ. So that's why we sing that song differently. Is our conscience the work of the Holy Spirit? No, but our, con- our Holy Spirit works with our conscience. And so you can sear your conscience with a hot iron, right? Isn't that what Romans says? You can't do that with the Holy Spirit. So don't confuse your conscience with the Holy Spirit. Your conscience just makes you know that you're not good enough. And that's not really what the convicting the Holy Spirit is. The convicting the Holy Spirit is a sense of what Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. I'm the worst. I don't measure up at all. Your conscience just kind of says, ooh, that makes you feel a little guilty. And guilt is a very good thing. It's the pain uh, that is necessary for you to recoil from doing evil. Just like physical pain helps you recoil from whatever is injuring you physically. And so, no, don't confuse the conscience with the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works with your conscience through God's word. That's the sword of the spirit is the word of God, not your conscience. And usually people who don't respond to the convicting and where the spirit stops convicting them is because they have seared their own conscience. They have just debased it so far that it's just non-existent. So they'll do evil and revel in it, which is a frightening number of people these days that revel in their evil. They're proud of it because they've gone past guilt over doing evil. All right, yes, that's right. All right, our prayer for the unsaved loved ones. We are praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. We're praying for open doors, or not only us but others. Praying that people will come into their life with the word of truth. Right? They they need the word of God. That's confrontation. We confront people with the truth. We confront them with the word of God. The word of God confronts you. It is is confrontational in nature. You can't read the word of God and not recognize it. It's confrontational. It just slaps you upside of the face, and and demands this is truth whether you acknowledge it or not you're going to be judged by it so we confront people with the truth and we are praying for the holy spirit to then convict them in with regard to that truth and that truth isn't just that they're sinners but it's also that god is righteous and that he will be your judge and so that's the three things we want to communicate in our confrontation with people but we're not there to convict them of it and that takes a lot of pressure off doesn't it I'm going to tell you the truth I'm not gonna make you try to feel that truth but a lot of preachers that's what they think evangelism is you got to make them feel that truth you know in the the hellfire brimstone preaching that we associate with that we can still preach hellfire because that's the judgment to come we still need to tell them about it proclaim it to them but not make them feel it okay now what's the famous hellfire sermon sinners in the hands of an angry god all right and he describes you as a spider on a single thread hanging over the flames of hell and one all takes for one of those things to just spark up and your web is gone and you just flung cast head and you'll just fall into the flames of hell forever and ever okay uh that's the premier paragraph in a whole sermon uh, and we think, well, that was a hellfire brimstone sermon. Well, technically, yes, but he did not jump up and down. He did not scream and yell. In fact, Jonathan Edwards read that sermon. That's why we have it. It was written in monotone in multiple churches. If I preached that way to you, you would leave. Or you would sleep through it and say, oh, it's another one of those. He read it in monotone, no inflection. He didn't get up as excited. He didn't, because he was a, that whole group of preachers, they condemned Charles Finney's uh, excitability. And they said, no, you should never communicate God's word emotionally. You should always communicate it uh, steadily and with the idea that let the Holy Spirit convict. And people never, he never had an altar call. No one ever came forward in any of Jonathan Edwards' sermons. Ever. Because the altar call was also a creation of Charles Finney. A great evangelist, um, but he, his whole thing was you strike when the iron's hot. Well, it's not your job to make the iron hot. <laughs> it's just your t- It's the Holy Spirit that makes it hot. Um, so most people, when they got saved during the, that period of Great Awakening, ran out of the building before the sermon was over. They got saved in the parking lot. Well, it wasn't a parking lot. It was the horse stalls. Um, they got saved outside. They ran out during the sermon afraid of hell um, because of his description of it that he read to them in monotone. And so we talk about the working of the Holy Spirit of convicting that's what moves you to, to that. And they responded to the convicting through that truth, communicated, and again, that's one paragraph in a whole sermon that you only hear about. Read the whole sermon and you'll see how well-developed an argument it is for your sinner, God is righteous, and he will judge you. That's all the sermon was. It really was. And people responded and ran out and got saved outside that's where they prayed their prayer and that's when the great reformation happened not reformation sorry the great awakening happened in reference to that sermon anyway okay so your prayer is for the convicting of the holy spirit as you have an opportunity to confront them with truth and if they don't receive it once you keep praying for the holy spirit to keep convicting them as long as they are willing to receive the truth, I am convinced that Spirit will continue to convict them. When they say, don't tell me that stuff anymore, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's done convicting them. It probably means the Holy Spirit is convicting them really well, and they're on the brink of deciding. When they say, don't talk to me about your religious stuff anymore, is probably when you need to pray for them harder, because that's probably when they're dealing with conviction most directly at that time the ones that i get frustrated with and get disappointed with and walk away with my head down is when they say eh because that's that is the response of a seared conscience is apathy not anger anger means they're still dealing with this conflict inside of them it's apathy that means frightening things in their life you don't care Eh, I don't care whatever believe whatever you want oh you can tell me all that stuff but it doesn't mean anything to me and I put my head down and I just weep because that is a horrible response but if someone's angry oh I love that because I'll pray for them because I know that spirit's working on them and anger is one of the uh, side effects of conviction and uh, even denial is to a degree a side effect of conviction because they're trying to justify themselves defend themselves but when they don't care eh, whatever I'm okay burning in hell I'm like, okay you know okay. let's pray Lord God would you thank you for your love for us we thank you for your word for your spirit for the work that he's done in us and continues to do in us we thank you uh, Lord we know that you are still at work in the world because we're still here your spirits still here and so Lord we pray for your convicting upon Those that we will encounter in the uh, hours, days, weeks to come, that we might have the boldness to confront them with your word, with your truth, that you would convict them, that some might receive you as Savior and Lord. And Lord, we have others that we have witnessed to time and time again. And we just wonder if it's worth continuing. And yet, Lord, you can pray, we pray you might continue to convict them, that they might Uh, turn from their sin to you and I see their great need and recognize who it is that they must answer to. And Lord, our prayer is that uh, as they come to know you as Savior and Lord, that their faith might be genuine, that we might take on the responsibility with them to help them grow in their faith, knowing that your spirit will come alongside to encourage it and admonish them, that we might exhort one another. And Lord, that we might Stand fast in our faith by your work of your spirit so mightily in us. And Lord, we do pray that uh, you might give us even this week another opportunity to share Christ with these that we encounter. And maybe for the first time that we have that open door to uh, interject your truth, that we might lay hold of it and that you might uh, come alongside of that and penetrate their hearts conviction, uh, that they might come to a point of decision uh, anew and fresh. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.